attention, attention all personnel, it's MASHCAST! Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that celebrates, one episode at a time, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which ran on CBS from 1972 to 1983, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Corporal Captain Rob Kelly, and joining us once again in the VIP tent is our pal, Major Kevin Latterdale. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Rob. I'm so glad to be able to be here and to reveal to you the secret origin of Hawkeye's name. Did you know his father? The only book he ever read was last book he can... Oh, wait, wait. We already covered that, right? Yeah, I did. That one I did know. Yeah, you really you really stumped us on that last one, the hot the hot breath Houlihan okay. uh, clip from Tuttle. But, but no, I did know about the, okay, the Hawkeye. Okay. I'll be back to reveal the secret origin of BJ's name. <laughs> His parents, B and J, honey. Oh, Everybody does. You, yeah, come on. Kevin, you don't have to top yourself. It's fine. Uh, it's totally okay. fine. So, uh, no, you did a great job. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you back because this episode we're here to talk about is season one, episode 17. Sometimes You Hear the Bullets, which originally aired on January 28th, 1973, written by Carl Kleinschmidt and directed by William Weard. And to a lot of people, this episode is where MASH arrives. This is where the show, you know, it, its genius bona fides are established, uh, is, is with this episode. Now, uh, there were some other arguments we can make about that the about what some episodes came later, but we can get at all that after the uh, the description of, of this particular episode. So, uh, this one opens with Frank and Hot Lips engaging in a romantic evening, but it is ruined when Frank's back goes out. As Hawkeye and Trapper tend to him, they learn that Frank has applied for a Purple Heart, something neither they or Henry can believe. But all that is interrupted when a childhood friend of Hawkeye's, Tommy Gillis, played by James T. Callahan, arrives in camp. The three of them head back to the swamp to get blasted. After sharing some stories about what Hawkeye was like as a child, he was a milk monitor. Tommy tells them he's writing a book about the war, You Never Hear the Bullet. Not from a reporter's point of view, but a soldier's. Tommy is there on the front lines with the rest of them. He tells Hawkeye and Trapper a story about a young kid that Tommy was reporting on who was suddenly blown apart. His last words were, I never heard no bullet. Wounded arrive, and Tommy heads back to the front. One of the wounded is a very young man, Private Wendell, played by Ron Howard. After catching Wendell trying to steal a jeep back to his unit, Hawkeye learns Wendell is not even 16 years old and went to war to impress his girlfriend back home so he can, quote, earn a medal and be a hero. Wendell begs Hawkeye not to turn him in, and Hawkeye grieves after failing to talk Wendell out of it. More wounded arrive, and one of the most hurt, is Tommy. Hawkeye worked on him, but it's no use. Tommy dies on the table, muttering in amazement that, unlike his book title, he heard the bullet that did him in. Afterwards, Hawkeye stands in the doorway of the OR, crying. Henry tries to console him, pointing out the two rules they taught him in command school. Rule number one, young men die. Rule number two, doctors can't change rule number one. Hawkeye decides then and there to do something. He then tells an MP that Private Wendell is only 15 years old and he should be sent home immediately. Wendell threatens to hate Hawkeye as long as he lives, and Hawkeye smiles and says that's a long and healthy hate. Later, to push you make it up to Wendell, Hawkeye gives him Frank's Purple Heart. So Wendell is getting what he wanted, but it will no longer be on the front lines. So that is uh, sometimes you hear the bullets, and uh, like I said, this is really a watershed moment for the series because it, it delivered the promise that as, as something that uh, Alan Alda wanted, that the MASH would not just be Abbott and Costello go to war. So, uh, Kevin, what do you think about this episode? When we did Tuttle, I sort of jokingly said, 
you know, Tuttle's my favorite episode, but sometimes you hear the bullet is definitely the best episode. And I went back and I rewatched it and I was, was, I was so pleased I was right. It wasn't just blowing smoke. I had said that Tuttle would be a great first episode to show somebody because it's not particularly about war. It's not particularly about medicine. But if you've done that, this is the best second episode to show somebody because it's, this is, as you said, the promise of MASH. It is about war. It's about the consequences about, of war. It's about different ways of looking at war, and it's still funny. This is a fantastic episode. I'm just going to cover just very briefly – Three little things, and we'll get to them in depth. Number one, in terms of storytelling, this is beautifully structured. There's three stories going on, and they all merge at the end. They're all in the service of each other. This could have been, I mean, really, the super story of this is Hawkeye's date with this nurse that keeps getting interrupted over and over again. And from his point of view, I'm sure that's the A story, and everything else is a B story, but all of these B stories merge. This could have been a, a Dear Dad or a Dear Uncle Abdul where there's three or four unrelated things going on, but all of them work together. If you're a would-be writer, especially if you want to work for TV, please study MASH scripts. I, <laughs> I jokingly said when we were watching Tuttle, you know, it's better written than it needs to be. I, I'm not going to say anything like that anymore. One of the hallmarks of MASH is the writing. Any episode of MASH, even a lesser one, is better than Two Broke Girls or whatever. So story structure, this is brilliant. Number two, casting. Oh, my God. I love Callahan, and I love Ronnie Howard. Whatever happened to him, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Ronnie's, Ronnie's next project was a little thing called American Graffiti. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you were an adult watching MASH in the 70s, you would have grown up watching little Ronnie Howard on the Andy Griffith show. And what better um, personification of American youth thrown into Viet- thrown into well, Vietnam? It's really about Vietnam, folks. It's not right, about right. That. Thrown into Korea than little little Opie Aunt, Opie Taylor. I mean, such fantastic friends. Okay, so there's writing, the casting, and then there are the the two the two things that really made me want to do this episode. Um, one is Henry's speech at the end, which you just quoted from. If you remember anything Henry Blake ever said, it's probably that speech. But finally, this episode contains what I consider to be MASH's mission statement, if you will. There's one line of dialogue, and don't worry, folks, I'll point out when we get to it, that encapsulates all of what MASH is about for me and really brings this all together. So this is brilliantly acted, brilliantly written. You can't go wrong with this episode. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, I'm watching this one over. It really just is everything that it's cracked up to be. And there's a there's a famous story about supposedly some CBS executive uh, saw this episode. I guess he saw it either just before it aired or, or saw it as it aired. And he was so disgusted by it that he cornered Larry Gelbart and said, someday I'm going to tell you how you ruined MASH. So uh, that guy probably went on to be network president or something like that. But uh, But yeah, that was, I mean, you know, they really thought that uh, TV viewers couldn't handle things like this. They, they couldn't handle the shift between drama and comedy. And, I mean, Larry Gelbart referred to something he said. He never wanted MASH to just be a smile button, as he called it, where it just it just forces you to, you know, laugh and chuckle for 28 minutes and then you forget about it. And like I said, the, the way that this toggles back and forth is brilliant. Because, as you said, the, the performance by um, 
Callahan, William Callahan, uh, or James T. Callahan, excuse me, uh, as as Tommy is great. You buy that him and Hawkeye were friends. They have a great rapport. The, I love the scene of them with uh, with Trapper in the tent where there's even a point where he whispers something in Trapper's ear about Hawkeye, and you, we never find out what that is. But And, and Wayne Rogers roars with laughter because it's obviously something very embarrassing, and Hawkeye throws a pillow at him. And it, you totally buy that these guys have been friends. I mean, they just kept the, this actor found the groove with Alda and Rogers immediately. And that that's important because if, if you don't buy that they're old friends, it just doesn't work. But, and the, the speech he gives about the, 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 the kid, you know, where, where he talks about in the war movies and it's always a, that blind kid who never die and always does. And then Hawkeye says, yeah, and they bring him back for the next movie. Great way to run a war. Yeah. That story he tells about the way the kid just he turns around and the kid was half of him was gone, which is pretty gruesome, you know, for even I mean, you don't see it, obviously, but just for it to be described in a comedy in 1973 was pretty gruesome. And then just the way that actor delivers the delivers the line, I I never heard no bullet like just the way the kid is just sort of stunned. All of that is fantastic. And then I I love uh, when. Uh, he says, uh, Hawkeye says, let's get drunk. Yeah. And, and Trapper says, I second that. And then Callahan, t- t- Tommy just goes, I never drink. Just as he's sloshing down the martini. I love that line. It is, it's a, and I love that you mentioned that it's these multiple storylines all, co- all coalescing into one thing. Because, of course, as Tommy's out there doing the real work, you've got Frank being the biggest chicken hawk in the <laughs> world demanding a purple heart for throwing out his back and, and saying well it's it's war related because it was at a combat unit and i love the hawkeye has the line about if we're going to give medals out for that then we're going to start giving purple hearts out for social diseases yeah. let, let, let me ask you a question rob and put you on the spot how long is tommy on screen oh god <laughs> not long probably like maybe three minutes i'd say out of four minutes out of the whole episode you're so close he's on a total of i timed it this is how I do. This is what I do. He's on a total for four minutes and forty-six seconds. Amazing. If you cut out his death scene, which is fifty-two seconds, Tommy's on screen for three minutes and fifty seconds, and that's in the hospital meeting Henry, um, giving him a big kiss, giving him a big kiss, going to the swamp, and going from laughing to the straight edge stuff about his book and more laughter. There's once again, I happen to be a writer, and I know. You've got some. You've done some writing too. Um, there is a school of thought which is you like characters who you can laugh with, and one of the things about Tommy is we are almost from the very start, almost to the very end, constantly laughing with him. He's a likable character. That's one of the tricks of writing. Is oh, I love this guy. He's funny. He's having a, he's joshing with Trapper. He's joshing with Hawkeye, and so we naturally love him. But the casting is so perfect. I just love the way he ranges from the wacky laughter to he's just dead on telling the story. Hey man, I'm a soldier. I'm not a correspondent. I'm going to tell this as it is, and his dramatic range is just so fantastic within just those three minutes and fifty seconds. Yeah, that's that is really amazing. Yeah, he's got this joie de vivre that is really charming. When he gives when he gives Henry that kiss on the lips, which again, even that by itself was pretty 
pretty transgressive <laughs> for 1973. I mean, obviously there's no sexual component. It's just meant to be goofy and fun. But I mean, I love the way McLean Stevens is like, uh, is it to- Tommy? Is it? To- <laughs> <laughs> He's a little put off by it. But I mean, James T. Callahan. This is one of these guys who was just sort of a jobbing actor. He's got he had credits on Doctor Kildare, Love American Style, The A Team, Alice Benson, ER. His last uh, project was a TV movie called Born uh, with Joan Severance, Allison Brie, Kane Hodder, and Denise Crosby. That's a that's a wow. bingo selection of uh, of uh, actors. This is one of these things where. There are actors that I've seen in shows. I've you know I've been watching TV for my whole life now, and there are actors that you kind of I think when you see them in a lot of junk, you know what I mean you dismiss them. You kind of say ah they just do bad stuff, and they're probably not a very good actor. But you have to realize that it's like a lot of actors probably are really capable if they're given really good material. I mean I looked through James James Callahan's uh, you know CV and I couldn't find anything that was memorable that I could rem- that I you know, could remember him being in. And yet he is amazing in this, which shows you, you know, a lot of actors, if they're given really great material like this script, they can knock it out of the park. And so this guy must have been like, you know, I could do lots of great stuff. I just never really was given the, I mean, you know, I don't mean to besmirch the A-team, but I don't <laughs> think he was ever really given anything on the A-team that was as memorable as this. But that monologue in the swamp, that's like guest spot Emmy quality performance. Exactly. Whoever cast this episode, I love him. And of course, bringing in, as I just said, bringing in Ronnie Howard, bringing in uh, American innocence as someone who's now going to be part of the Korean experience. I like to think a lot of thought went into that. Didn't just say, let's get this young guy. Yeah, I I remember watching that Andy Taylor show or whatever. He's so perfectly cast. And he delivers American youth and American energy so wonderfully, too. The thing about MASH is not only was it brilliantly written, it was so frequently brilliantly cast. Yeah, I mean, it really is beautifully done. And they said the the, the scene of where um, the the scene to of with Henry and Hawkeye and where Hawkeye is crying. First of all, I can't think of. Can you think of another time where like the the main star of your TV show, your male star, was shown crying? Like that's pretty. Again, not something you saw a lot of. But in a comedy, especially in a com- yeah, in a comedy, right? Yeah. Well, here's the but thing, I, again, another aspect of writing is it's so hard in television shows, recurring television shows. To have your char- – change is part of the essence of drama, and yet your characters have to be at the end of the episode essentially the same as they were at the beginning of the episode. And that's another wonderful thing about this one is – jumping forward – is Hawkeye's talking with Wendell, Roy Walter. And he's like, you know, you want to pretend to be a soldier, fine. doesn't doesn't matter to me. But when Tommy dies and we have that wonderful change where Hawkeye realizes I can save one life, and so it's a wonderful element of – change and characterization for Hawkeye to take part in, which you almost never see in other, in other shows. Right. It's a great turn of the idea that, of, that Tommy can't be saved. Tommy is so wounded that he can't be, he can't be saved. But Hawkeye can merit this frustration into an action yeah. and to do something else. He can save another life, which is, again, a great, and it's, it's funny because, I mean, the first couple of times I watched this episode, you almost kind of forget about the Wendell storyline. Right. You know, because the Tommy thing is so powerful that you forget that he has basically given Wendell the, the, the pass. You know, he's like, all right, I'm not going to rat you out. I mean, I love that he tries with the whole thing about 
well, this girl of yours, Bernice, if she, if, is any girl worth having, a girl that cares about whether you have a medal or not? And Ron Howard flashes him this look of like, don't be, you know, he doesn't say anything, but it's almost like, don't you say anything bad about my girlfriend. And Hawkeye's like, okay, okay, okay. But I mean, you sort of forget about that storyline. You just you put it out of the back of your mind. And then it comes back in at the end again, which is brilliantly constructed. I mean, it's amazing. Carl, Carl Kleinschmidt, he only wrote one other episode of MASH, which is the season two episode, LIP, which is also a great episode. So I don't, I mean, I, I don't know what the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the machinations were of, of hiring writers, but why wasn't Carl Kleinschmidt asked to come back and do more episodes of MASH? He clearly had a knack on it because these are both really great shows. He did other shows like That Girl, Gomer Pyle. Can you imagine him writing? You're trying to write this for Gomer Pyle. Yeah, Dick definitely. Van Dyke, The Brady Bunch Variety Hour, and then another TV movie. I love the finding these TV movies. He did a TV movie called Hi Honey, I'm Dead with <laughs> Curtis, Curtis Armstrong, Catherine Hicks, Kevin Conroy, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which, again, I love these cast of these TV yep. movies, it's just like TV uh, TV actor bingo. But I mean, that's so frustrating to me that he didn't get to do more because I think they knew from the beginning how good this one was. I wonder, you know, they knew they knew it right off the bat. Like, oh, this this one turned out great. I wonder what was in the Bible because Hawkeye's conversation with Wendell is what leads me to what I think of as Mash's mission statement, which is they're talking about. Wendell wants to go back and do some more fighting to impress Bernice. He says, I'm, I'm ready to go back and kill me some more gooks, sir. And Hawkeye says, Wendell the word, for yeah. gooks is people. And that, for me, is mash in one sentence. Because the concept of the alienation, the other, that we fight wars because we're fighting something that is inhuman, something that is other. And the people who are in charge of wars want us to think of our enemies as something other than people. And I was just thinking about this as I was rewatching this episode and other episodes. MASH is so unique in its point of view of medicine. Almost everything else we've ever seen is, um, you know, going, to, going all the way back to like melodramas on the radio, Dr. Kildare and Trapper John and Quincy, <laughs> American doctors treating essentially American patients. MASH is the only show I can think of where our, our doctors are treating essentially the enemy, the other, and yet. You have to treat them as human beings. That's what MASH is all about. It's won so many like Humanitas Awards and things like that for realizing that we are all people. And I think of uh, like the Hippocratic Oath, which is what the doctors I imagine they used to take. I don't know if they still take it. A lot of people may know the, the first part, you know, first do no harm. But there's another part later on where you as a doctor swear, said something like, any house I enter, I will treat all people equally, be they male or female, master or slave. And you can say the same thing, you know, it was war zone. I will treat everybody equally, be they ally or enemy. And the idea that something that is the other can be a person too is especially powerful. And for me, that's what MASH is all about. It's a reminder, war is hell, but we are human beings. We need to treat each other as fellow human beings. And with that, sorry to be heavy, folks. Let's go back to the jokes. Yeah, well, I mean, I mentioned uh, in the episode four, I believe, the moose, and that's that's the one where uh, the the one the, the one visiting staff sergeant comes in and he says, uh, you know, uh, the the gooks they don't mind working. And Hawkeye's like, I don't like that word. And he's like, what's sir, gook? And he's like, nothing personal. And he's like, then knock it off. And yeah. you know, when I was a kid. I wanted. I looked up to Hawkeye. Hawkeye was like a hero of mine because he was smart, capable. He got. A, he was a smart ass. I mean, you mentioned in the, the the Tuttle show about how much kids look up to Hawkeye and Trapper because you know they're 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 they're. 
they're getting away with so much. They're getting away with, you know, thumbing their nose at authority. And it was important for me to be like Hawkeye as much as I could. And I, I didn't know what that word meant. I'd never heard it. My parents didn't talk like that. Um, and, you know, but I knew that that was a bad word. And when I finally learned what it meant, what it was a derogatory term for, I was like, oh, no, that's – you." Bad people talk like that. That's not the way you talk. And that was that was a big deal. And so I, I love that that's a repeating thing from Hawkeye is that he always finds the moment to say, hey, and in, and in a gentle way. You know, he doesn't say, hey, he doesn't, hey, he doesn't say, Wendell, you racist, yeah. which, of course, is going to put your back up. Uh, he just says another word for this, you know, another word is, is, is people. And, and, you know, Wendell doesn't really want to hear it, but he really gently tries to, uh, to to steer Wendell in the right direction. I do enjoy the, the, the little bit of a mistake is where he catches Wendell trying to hotwire the Jeep. You don't need to hotwire Jeeps. Jeeps start with an ignition button uh, because you, you, you're not going to – if you're trying to worry about uh, running away from the enemy, you can't worry about finding your keys for the Jeep. So just, you can just hop in a Jeep and drive away. You don't, Wendell didn't uh, realize that. Very minor detail. But I mean, And again, it's shocking to me where he's talking to Wendell – and he's like, "What are you?" Uh, he's like, "You're not 18." He's like, um, "He's like, what are you, 16?" And he says, "Almost." <laughs> you're like, "You're 15 years old." I mean, when I was 15 years old, I had pretty much just given up my Star Wars action figures at that point. <laughs> Imagine being a Marine at 15 years old. It's, I mean, Ron Howard was not 15, but yep. you you buy it. You know, you buy it. And I love the whole idea that he's he says, um, "Don't your parents wonder where you are?" And he goes, uh, "I sent him some postcards. Say I'm, I ran away from the circus. They don't know the difference. Like <laughs> running away from the circus. Like that's a thing you couldn't get away from nowadays." It's also delightfully 1950s. There's a wonderful bit in there when they're they're performing an operation on Wendell, really Walter, because he has appendicitis, and they've got him stripped to the chest, and the doctors are like, "You know, look at this guy. He's barely got any hair on his body." And I think it's Trapper who says, "Yeah, maybe he's a flat-chested whack." One of the things I <laughs> wanted to point out for people who are younger is that whack was the women's. Um, Army Corps. It was the female division of the Army. There was a special – there was the Waves. It was a special division of the Navy. The Coast Guard had a special name. But what's interesting is uh, Wendell's supposed to be a Marine, and the Marines didn't have a nickname. And at one point, somebody asked the commandant of the Marines in the 1940s, how come you guys don't have a nickname? And he said, they're Marines. They don't need nicknames. <laughs> and I always thought that was clever. I always thought that was clever. Um, yeah. Did you, do you know, because we're going to talk about, oh, one of the things I just wanted to point out really fast is Frank's quest for a Purple Heart. Um, for those of you who are watching carefully, at the very beginning of the episode, when Frank and Margaret are having their little meeting, they're both wearing purple. His back, oh, I didn't even notice that. His oh, wow. bathrobe is purple, and her sort of Japanese kimono has a lot of purple in it, too. Once again, very, very elegant, subtle foreshadowing. Do you know the story, Rob? Because I know you're a, a big historian of World War II. Do you know the story of Basically, the 1.5 million Purple Hearts that were made. Have you heard about that? No. No, I don't know. So when we were anticipating basically a land invasion of Japan, because um, that's the way we thought it was going to go until we developed the atomic bomb, it was anticipated there were going to be massive amounts of casualties just because the Japanese were going to fight to the death. And so something like 1.5 million Purple Hearts were manufactured in the, in the mid-40s. And fortunately, we did not have to engage in a land invasion. So basically, up until around a desert storm, so that includes Korea and Vietnam, if you got a Purple Heart, it was manufactured by the corporation that made them in the late 40s. They were stockpiled. Wow. 
So that's, I never knew that. That's that, amazing. That's a really interesting bit. I, I love the idea that uh, that's that's an ongoing storyline for Frank because, yeah. like, as late as season four, he's still trying to get a Purple Heart. Yeah. Like, he was just absolutely obsessed with getting this recognition mm-hmm. uh, for, for, for combat duty when, of course, he doesn't deserve it. So I love that that was, a, again, an ongoing thing for him, that he just – he was he was not to be deterred at getting his uh, getting his Purple Heart. Yeah, there's three ways – the three ways of looking at the war come through in this episode. Once again, so well written. There's Frank's view, which is he wants unearned valor. Okay. There's Wendell's view, which is he wants valor, but for the wrong reasons. He's not there to defend his country or to defend the American way. He wants to impress a girl. And finally, there's Tommy's view, where he's not interested in valor or not valor. He just wants to tell the truth. He just wants to say what it's like. As a, as a soldier, not as a chorus, but he wants an unfiltered view of reality. Again, one of the reasons we love him so much. Again, good job, Carl Kleinschmidt. You know that is a, that is amazing a bit of writing for for twenty three minutes of television, and it's also the director William Weard, who also directed Tuttle, yeah. uh, and he directed LIP. So he oh. did both of Carl Kleinschmidt's episodes. Again, this is a guy who was really good at this. Uh, it's said it's just it's an amazing episode. I'm trying to think as I'm. Recalling in my mind, is Radar even in this one at all? I don't think he makes an appearance in this one. Uh, I think he shows up to interrupt Hawkeye's date. Once I think there's something like, you know, he shows up and he says, um, Major Houlihan wants, he shows up and Hawkeye says, Margaret, I'm going to shoot you. He says, it's not Margaret, it's Radar. He goes, Margaret, I'm going to shoot Radar. I think. He, oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. He's in the background. Klinger's not in this episode. Neither Father McKay, right? But yeah, it's a small role. I mean, this really is. It's just. It's pretty much all just Hawkeye and Trapper and and Henry. Actually, and then it's all... sorry, Father McKay, he is in this episode because he has my favorite joke. What's his? Oh well, what's what's get to that? What's your favorite joke? Ends very briefly, and again, foreshadowing. Um, he shows up early in the episode, and Hawkeye says, "Oh, don't worry, Father. We, we don't need you. There's there's no last rites." And Father McKay says, "Can I show you something in a get well prayer?" Oh, that's right. And the Hawkeye's like, uh huh. <laughs> and then, of course, at the end, when Tommy's being operated on, Father Mokay shows up again, and this time he is there to deliver last rites. Oh, that's right, because Henry's the one who calls him. Henry's like, right. Father Mokay, he? And that's the indication of, yeah, things are really bad. Yep. There's wow. the foreshadowing in this episode. I really just can't get over how well structured this episode is. And again, we're, what are we in? Like, is this 16, 17 episodes? 17. 17 episodes in. And everybody had, at least these writers we're talking about, had such a great grasp of who the characters were and how you need to insert things and how you need to talk about things just a little bit at the beginning to play, play them out at the end. Ugh. Right. Now, and I said, it's amazing when you think that, you know, they found the formula, you know, with this one, they found it. And it's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And yet MASH would, you know, like, I guess, depending on, on the order these were produced or the order they were written when they were ready. I mean, MASH would in subsequent episodes, and we will get to them, they would produce a couple of clunkers this season after this one. Um, and we'll get to them, but like the Long John Flap, I don't think it's a particularly great episode. And then they later on, there's Major Fred C. Dobbs, which yeah. Larry Gilbart himself called the worst episode we ever did. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing to think that in, in your mind, you kind of think, oh, well, maybe all the rough ones are before sometimes you hear the bullet. And it's after that one that they really got it and figured, and then they were off and running. No, they had a couple of, you know, a couple of bumps, speed bumps in the road after this one, but it was kind of thing like, Oh, no, no, let's go back to this. This was the formula that we found. And once they establish it, 
they again they were just off and running because they knew the balance of how they could do it. And something else I wanted to mention uh, before I forget a couple different well a couple different things. First of all, acting wise, there are two other actors in this that play patients: Fred Lerner and Chuck Hicks. Those guys are both mostly stuntmen. Uh, I guess they figured they could just they just need them to lie rather. They didn't need them to 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 speak much. But Fred Lerner did stunts on a little movie called Die Hard. Wow! And uh, Chuck Hicks did stunts on Star Trek two and three. So these guys were not just stuntmen. These were like major league stuntmen. I mean, these are big guys doing big movies. But the um, I want to get back to the scene with uh, Hawkeye and Henry mm. because I love that it's Henry who is the one. Because, you know, Henry is a contemporary of these guys. At least he acts like it. He's part of the gang. He's certainly much more part of the, the gang than, than Sherman Potter will be where, where he's much more an authority figure because he's much older. But nevertheless, Henry is older. Henry does have more experience, and I love that Henry is the one who comes in to comfort Hawkeye. It's not Trapper. It's not. I mean, I, I guess it wouldn't be anybody else but Trapper, really, or they were not going to give that moment to Father Mulcahy. But I love that it's Henry, and he's the one who has to kind of comfort Hawkeye and just explain to him that, yeah, this guy's young. I mean, Hawkeye's never been in a war before, not that Henry has, but Henry is seen a little more, and he's the one to say, look, I've been taught this. And the way that, the, that he delivers those lines with the rules – uh, you know, rule number one, young men died. Rule number two, doctors can't change rule number one. It's got this wonderfully almost comical circularity to it of that it doubles back on itself and that it's like basically there's one rule and you're going to have to live with it. Uh, and we, it's, it's great speech. It always struck me as almost sort of Hemingway-esque yes. simplicity. It, yeah. When I was thinking – before we started doing your podcast and I went back and rewatched the show, I, re- I said this before in the title episode. I didn't really care much for Henry, but watching him again, every now and then he is given um, sim- not simplistic but like elegantly simple stuff to say. Things are just so true and so pure. And I really appreciate Henry so much more. And this is his, his best speech. The rule number one, rule number two, as far as I'm concerned, if you remember anything Henry ever said, it's this. His, his directness, and, and he ties it back to the Army. He's like Will Rogers. All I know is what I was taught in command school, man. Taught in command school. I would have loved to have seen Henry in command school. He, he's got another line in The Sniper where he talks about uh, command school where he refers to – he says uh, – you know, I, I, we're not supposed to surrender without orders. I, I, they were very specific about that in command school. The guy said, "Blake, never <laughs> surrender without checking first. I just, I just, I just love the visual of some guy sitting Henry down and telling him. And you know, I was talking about how actors sometimes don't get the material they deserve, and, and specifically, you know, speaking specifically about the guest actor, but McLean Stevenson. You know, when I was growing up and I was coming, you know, I was like becoming 10 or 11 and watching a lot of television. McLean Stevenson was kind of like a shorthand for a joke. Yep. Because he was in Hello, Larry, and he was in a lot of crap. And he became this, he was synonymous with just somebody who does junky stuff. And that's because he really didn't do a lot of very good material after MASH. But he is awesome on this show. And it just shows you what an actor can do when they're given good material because he is tremendous. He's tremendous across all three seasons. But this this moment, as you say, it is one of his finest moments as an actor. Is that speech? It's just brilliantly, brilliantly done. I just want to remind everybody: this is still a comedy episode. It's yeah, <laughs> funny. I don't want everybody to be bogged down by this. It's still. Funny. Um, one of the things that struck me is, you know, there's a, there's, I'm sure there's lots of comedians who talk about this, who say things like, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I always thought quicksand was going to be a much more major problem. Yeah. Right. yeah. Traction 
is a thing that I don't think anybody gets anymore. When Frank falls and hurts himself as bad, he has to be basically put in suspension for a couple of days. I don't know what has replaced traction, but it appeared a lot in the 70s on TV. Is it just can people opioids? Is that what took care of it instead? I guess because it was funny to look at, to yeah. put somebody in a rig with their leg up in the air and like to, to realize that they were so sort of helpless. And it, and the word is funny, traction. It just sounds funny. Exactly. But you're talking about that this is a funny episode. I, I do want to go over my favorite joke, mm. and it's delivered perfectly, as usual, by Alan Alda. And it's when Hawkeye is stunned that Henry might process Frank's request for a Purple Heart. And he says, Henry, you're not going to endorse this idiot's application, are you? And Hot Lips, that's major to you. And then Hawkeye, without missing a beat, Henry, you're not going to endorse this major idiot's application, are you? <laughs> the way he doesn't miss it, it just immediately sticks major in front of idiot. It makes me laugh every time. It's, it's, it's funny on the page, but it's, to me it's gut-bustingly funny the way Arnold delivers it, is that he just doesn't hesitate to just incorporate what Hot Lips said, but not in the way she wants. I absolutely love it. There's another one, which is, this is my second favorite joke, just because I'm the kind of guy who does this, is when he's with um, the nurse, and they're trying to have martinis, and he's talking about the olives he has, and the olives are terrible. He goes, you know, he goes, you get them from, like, North Korea? He goes, I know a red on the black market who can get me green olives. Yeah. <laughs> and there's... there's I was fascinated by this. I was watching ahead, like in the second season, there's an episode where he's, I think, just as a bit of side business, Hawkeye's like putting pimentos into olives. Yes. The olives. What I want to know is this. What are they making their gin out of? Because they're in Korea. And the only thing I know about Korea in term, from MASH is kimchi, which is made of cabbage. Are they just stealing cabbage to make their gin? No wonder it tastes gnarly. That's that. That sounds. That sounds horrible. I mean, I don't like olives, so every time I and, oh. so when Hawkeye bites into the olive and he makes that scrunchy, I'm like, yeah, I'm right there with you, pal. It's just, <laughs> just disgusting. So yeah, I mean, this. Like I said this episode is just. I can only imagine what viewers must have thought when they were watching this. I mean, just this is such a gut punch of a show, and you're not expecting it, and. And I said it's just it's just absolutely wonderful. All the performances are right across uh, right across the board, and and, and Hawkeye's line and again the um the uh, the edit of this episode in syndication ends with Hawkeye's speech to Wendell, where he says, "I hope it's a long and healthy hate." That's the end of the show. It's only in the when I finally saw the DVD versions that we see the the button scene where he ends up giving Wendell the Purple Heart, which is a nice way to end it mm-hmm. because it it softens it a little. He doesn't want Wendell to hate him. He doesn't really want Wendell to hate him because uh, he's trying to he's trying to do the right thing by him. So that's the, I never saw the scene until until the martinis and medicine box set so for for years it ended with the long and healthy hate. But even that that's a great line, a long and healthy hate. It's just. Yeah, that's you know Hawkeye's like that's what I want, pal. It's just, it's a great even if the show really did end with that, it, it's a great way to, to end the show. Yeah, so I'm gonna save your life. To what purpose? That's another thing about again the the doctors in war is how many times have we seen the doctors saving somebody's life even though you know they're going to be sent back to the front, even though you know um, there's like some North Koreans who are going to be taken in and possibly tried and executed. As a doctor, your job is to save the life, and what happens then is, you know, outside of your hands. But you're you're there to preserve human life. God bless you, Hawkeye. Yeah, it's a wonderful scene. By the way, there was in the, in an episode of uh, the Andy Griffith Show. Uh, well, no, in Gomer Paul USMC, Ron Howard uh, played uh, Opie in an episode where it's Opie joins the Marines. So if you want to, you know, you want to just. 
put it all together in one giant mash Mayberry universe, you could do that if you prefer. That'd be fantastic. I actually, I actually <laughs> liked. I watched um, Gomer Pyle USMC, and I enjoyed it. Uh, the, the fact though that I think it actually takes place during Vietnam, and Vietnam is never referenced, is amazing. Is an interesting side of it. But I enjoyed it as as a, as a comedy. It's uh, excellent character. It's almost all characterization because there is. That's really interesting. There is no war going on. It's also a workplace comedy. Where the mm-hmm. world happens to be. You know, a marine barrack. It's almost all character interaction, all character work. Yeah, it's just that. It's this is this is just a tremendous episode, and I almost wish I had more to say about it. But just it's like perfect across the board. It really is. They they knew they found their formula, and when when once they hit that right, and there were some really great episodes later to come in the in the first season too. I mean, there's a bunch of other great ones, but this one is everything. It's sort of uh, made out to be. Um, oh, there oh, one thing I do enjoy the scene of with Hawkeye and Lynette Meddy as as the nurse, and she talks about that the, she's discovered Hawkeye's porn stash. <laughs> find that very funny where they've got the dirty version of snow white like... well but it's hidden behind a copy of aerosmith by is it by Sinclair yeah. lewis i think i had to read that in my like modernist novel class it's, it's about for those of you here's your subtitle here's your annotation it, it's about a young medical researcher so of course it's exactly the sort of thing that, Hawk, that hawkeye would have uh, on the outside and <laughs> the inside is the, is the good stuff were there a lot of were there a lot of uh, tv characters in 1973 that were uh uh, openly uh, solicitous of porn. I don't. I don't think you saw a lot of that in television. He's always getting those. And once again, one of those things you didn't get as an eleven-year-old or a ten-year-old new naturalist ma- health and efficiency naturalist magazine. <laughs> like, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> okay, yeah. Volleyball. I don't want to. Who's going to read a magazine where people play volleyball? What the hell's going on? <laughs> Elsa the magnificent. <laughs> so, uh, well, that that's sometimes you hear the bullet. It's everything. It's cracked up to be. Uh, I said it's just an, an amazing, amazing show, and it's the kind of thing where it's like this is what made Mash special, you know. This is what made it pop, and what made it uh, unlike anything you ever really saw before. And so it, it's it's just a tremendous, tremendous episode. So, Kevin, uh, thank you so much for coming on, man. I always enjoy talking to you, and uh, this was just terrific. I wanted to make sure that we did this one right because this is such a special episode. And so I'm very always I'm happy to have you back on. My, absolutely, my pleasure. And once again, if you're a writer or if you're a teacher, maybe teaching writing. Go back, plot out the character arcs and see how they overlap, see how they pay off and reward each other. This is a really – didn't that – hold on. Didn't this episode get nominated for like a Writer's Guild Award or something like that? I believe so, yeah. I think it did. It's really worthy of your time and your attention. Absolutely. So uh, where can people find you on the internet? Yo, you can find me at kevinlauderdale.blogspot.com. Woohoo. And I've got a <laughs> Facebook page. I'm uh, the white guy who hasn't shaved. I'm not the black guy from England. There's a Kevin Lauderdale in, I think, Newcastle, England. I occasionally get these requests from other, from other um, Kevin Lauderdales. There's like seven of us at least. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one who has a lot of MASH and Star Trek references on Facebook and almost all my posts are public. So check me out at Blogspot. Check me out on Facebook. And check me out on this show. And you can occasionally hear me on another network, um, the Chronic Rift Network, doing my podcast about radio, old-time radio shows from the 30s to the 50s called Presenting the Transcription Feature. That's a great show. I enjoy it very much. So, again, thank you so much for coming on. I always enjoy talking to you. It's just terrific. Um, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes, back episodes of the show on our network site, fireandwaterpodcast.com. And we're always talking MASH over on Twitter at MASH4077CAST. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next week, that is all.
explain it to you. Okay, there's always that big blonde kid who's always in all those war movies, right? One that should never die and always does. Yeah, and they bring him back to life in the next movie. <laughs> it's a great way to run a war. Right. Well, you always hear this big, loud ricochet just before he gets killed, huh? Yeah. Well, that's not the way it really happens. There was a young blonde kid in our outfit. One day I looked over and half of them was gone. You know what he said? He said, uh, I never heard no bullet. That's why that book is called what it's called. Let's get drunk. I'll drink to that. I never drink. <laughs> 